Welcome to the Monroe Church of Christ podcast. I'm Derek Glover, preacher of the Monroe Church of Christ in Monroe, Wisconsin, and I want to thank you for joining us. I hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment or a review on iTunes, and share it with a friend, family member, co-worker, or someone that you think would be interested to know more about our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's good to be here this morning. I don't know how many of you are up early enough on Sunday morning to hear our, our radio program that uh, airs on um, WEKZ, but this morning uh, we've been in a, in a series for several weeks on the book of Hebrews, and this morning we talked about uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And at this time, in, in this setting, we've been discussing the Sermon on the Mount and Christ's moment uh, when he kicks off his ministry with uh, an explanation and a description of what the Christian age should look like. We talked a little bit about that last week, but this morning I want to start in Hebrews because we can draw a connection to the message Christ was sending and to the message that was later written in that book. And it has to do with the fulfillment of God's purpose and his law in Christ and how that changes the way we live. Side note, before we dive into that, um, in case anyone hadn't heard, uh, but we do want to celebrate, the Saunders are down in Freeport with their family today, but on, I believe it was Wednesday, uh, Wesley was baptized into Jesus Christ, and so we're uh, celebrating with them that uh, he made that decision, and uh, really, really excited um, for them and for him especially. And I know that wasn't a decision he made lightly, so uh, maybe drop them a note or give them a phone call and let him know you're thinking about him and supporting him. Uh, So, on to Hebrews chapter 11. It's really the culmination of the book of Hebrews. You know, we we can get into chapters 1 through 10 and talk about how the case is made that Christ is superior to the angels, he's superior to Moses, His law is superior to Moses' law. Heaven is superior to Canaan. All of these things, it all leads up to chapters 7, 8, and 9 that talk about the priesthood and Christ as a new high priest. And if you have a new priest, then you have a new priesthood. And if you have a new priesthood, you have a new law. That's the whole point. We get to chapter 10, and that is the, the, the climax of the book of Hebrews, that we have a new law, and this new law is the fulfillment of the old law, Christ has gone before us, he's paid the debt, he's satisfied all the sacrifice, all the requirement, and now what is the result of that? It's a transition from a relationship that is merit-based and transactional with God to a relationship that is full of grace and what that calls us to. Sometimes, and and, and in the last hundred years, uh, we have wrestled with this battle that we put into two categories um, ideas about God. That on the one hand, we have a God who is um, full of wrath and is waiting for us to make a mistake and is demanding perfection from us. And on the other hand, we have a God who is full of grace and love and really has no rules. Those are two extreme false arguments, uh, a false dichotomy between faith and works. The two go together. Uh, The difference is in how we get closer to God by how we live. Under the old law, 
in a merit-based system. God said, I want you to be perfect as I am perfect. Here are the ways to do that. They, couldn't, they could not keep that law perfectly, and there were mechanisms in there to try and help them uh, purchase the patience of God for a time. But it was flawed. It wasn't perfect. And it created this need, this crying out for Jesus. So when Christ came and he offered himself as the sacrifice, he fulfilled the requirements of the law. So really, God is no different today because he offers grace through Christ. He still demands perfection. It's just that Christ is the means of achieving it. So there's really not this big chasm between these two groups. But for so many years, it prevented us from, from really doing some good study and good preaching about these two things, that they go together. Because if you started talking about grace, well, you were on one end of the spectrum. And if you started talking about good works, you were seen as on the other end. But really, the answer lies in the two of them balanced with one another. And that's what Hebrews 11 is about. Because he's speaking to people who grew up with the old law. And they understood doing certain things to be pleasing to God. And the author is saying, that's no longer relevant. That's no longer uh, up to date. It's obsolete. It's been rewritten with Christ as the centerpiece. And now your life has to go on living in this new paradigm. How do we do that? And the author begins chapter 11. Well, he didn't know he was beginning chapter 11. But for us, he begins chapter 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen for. By it, men of old gained approval. He's going to go back in chapter 11. He's going to go through, first of all, by faith we accept that God created the world. He starts with creation. He moves to Cain and Abel. He goes to Abraham. He goes to Noah. He goes to Moses. He, he moves through Scripture as they knew it and shows faith being put into action. These, these giants of their faith were not people who simply did what God told them to to earn a place with him. They did what God told them to because they believed and had faith in God and faith motivated their good works. And the author is saying, don't let your good works be motivated by the rote routine of the law. Let your good works be motivated by a meaningful and active faith. That's the whole big difference between the old law and the new law. Not a righteousness earned, but a righteousness imputed by grace and a life lived in response to that rather than in earning of it. And it's interesting that the author says this here in chapter 11. And then after he finishes that, he goes through this list of all these great names. And, and by the way, it's not an ex extensive list. He says, hey, I don't even have time to talk about some of these other folks. But he gets to the end of that passage, and he says this, verse 39 in chapter 11, All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. In other words, these people did all of these things with merely an expectation that God was going to do something great at some point, but they had not yet seen the reality of it. You and I are on the other side of the gospel from those folks in chapter 11, aren't we? We are called to the same faith, the same obedience, and that's what chapter 11 is. The faith that saves is the faith that obeys. Okay, uh, There are works associated with faith. 
But the question is, do works produce faith or does faith produce works? I think the answer from the author in Hebrews is, in chapter 11, that faith produces good works. And those saved by grace through faith must do those good works. And the author says all of those of old who did those good works by faith, they did that not yet knowing who Jesus was. They did it with merely the promise of Christ. And yet they did it anyway. And then this verse, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Because of Jesus, we live differently than the world around us. And those that have gone before us as ancestors in faith did the same thing. And we have the example going back to the beginning of time, even before they knew Jesus, of people living lives of obedience because of their faith. And the author of Hebrews would say, don't let the law get in your way of having a more organic and deep and meaningful obedience through faith, not just through keeping the law. You know, I try to obey the speed limit. I'm much better at it now than I used to be. And I never was a, I wasn't a hot rodder, okay? I wasn't a rebellious kid, okay? I had, I had friends who loved to drive fast, and they did it on purpose. And they'd get in their car, and they'd go 25 miles an hour over the speed limit, and they never got pulled over. And the one time they might, they always got a warning. I just didn't pay attention when I drove. I never intended to go fast, but I would be driving along and find my lead foot taking me 15, 20 miles an hour with the speed limit. And I never, for like three years, I never got a warning. I always got a ticket when I got, maybe I just looked dishonest. Maybe I just, maybe I'm, I don't know, but I would all, I got so many tickets and I had to learn to pay attention. And one of the things that helped me really pay attention was when I started having children, you kind of start thinking more about safety and being careful and and, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll still push it a little bit. They just raised the speed limits in Arkansas. So when we go visit my family later this summer, hey, I'm going to enjoy 80 miles an hour on the, on the interstate. It's going to be great. But the, the difference in obeying a speed limit because that's what's posted and obeying it because you know that that's what's safest for yourself and those around you is the difference in obeying a law because it's what God gave you and said to do to get to heaven versus you have a faith and an abiding love with God and you want to please Him. There's a difference in what motivates us. And the author of Hebrews says, now that Christ has come, live differently. Don't let this law get in the way of you having a close relationship with God. You can do the right things and still have the wrong motivation. And so in the midst of seeing this and reading this, and as I've been looking at it recently because of presenting it on the, on the radio, it amazed me at how similar it sounds in its main point to the beginnings of the Sermon on the Mount, spoken by Jesus himself. 
Because the message of Christ on the, in the Sermon on the Mount is very similar to the message of Hebrews, which is Christ has come, the world has changed, don't slide back into that old way of thinking. Don't slide back into that old way of living. Carry forward with a changed life in Christ. And Jesus now, as he begins his ministry, is saying to this crowd, there's a change coming. There is a change coming. And the doors are about to be kicked wide open to heaven. It's not just for certain families and certain tribes and certain nations. It is going to be for everyone and all of you will have the opportunity to live righteous lives of faith because of me. And as we look at Matthew chapter 5, we talked about the Beatitudes last week and about how uh, they were essentially an invitation, permission for the average person to be made righteous. In verse 13 of chapter 5, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is interesting because... A little bit later in this same, uh, same sermon, he's going to talk about being a little bit quiet about expressing your faith. Don't be praying on the street corner. Don't look all run down when you're fasting. You know, try to present yourself well. But here he says, you want people to see what you do, but only when it reflects the glory of God. Because what you want them to see is the amazing power of Jesus. He doesn't say that about himself. He refers to God. But that's what we want people to see. We want people to see the transformative power of Jesus in how we live. Now, what Jesus points out here, similar to what the author of Hebrews points out, is that there's a different way to live now. And he reminds them, you are supposed to be making a difference. Salt makes a difference. Uh, there's a whole lot of other examples chemically because there's more, to, there's more to salt than just what's in the shaker on your table. There's different kinds of salts, right? I did not take chemistry. Well, I did, but it's been a long time, and I didn't really pay that much attention. So there's all kinds of salts out there in nature, classified as salts. But they're, they're, they have reactive properties. They do things. In our life, in just common everyday usage, we notice when there's not enough salt there. And we notice when there's too much salt in something. Salt lets its presence be known very quickly. And it can do amazing things, too. I mean, we know about that because most of us have a water softening system because we have hard water around here. And what do we put in that big tank, in that, in that brine tank? You put big old chunks of salt. And it reacts to that water and it helps draw that magnesium and that calcium out. It's a really amazing. I'd never seen one of those before. I didn't know what those did because we didn't have hard water where I grew up. So I had to figure out how these things work. It's a really fascinating process, really. We, all of us, and, and boy, when it gets in the dead of winter here, it's kind of hard to come by sometimes if you wait too long. But salt is essential to clearing our sidewalks and our driveways, and it makes things easier. A couple of winters ago, we had a solid sheet of ice on this parking lot. 
And I mean, it was, it was slick and it was, it, 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 there was no snow on it. It was just ice. It looked like a, a lake on top of our, our, uh, our parking lot. And I was coming back into town from somewhere and, and I realized well, we got church tomorrow. We need to get some salt on this. I need to start to break this up. And I had enough time. I stopped at Walmart. No salt. So I ran over to Farm and Fleet. They didn't have any like the rock salt, but they did have salt additive like you would use with cattle. Uh, and the, the lady said, I mean, it has salt in it. And I thought, well, that's better than nothing. So I started throwing it out here in the parking lot and it didn't do a thing. There wasn't enough salt in it. But you could sit there, and it was, it was getting dark, and it was quiet, and I'd spread it out, and you could hear the ice creaking, creaking and cracking. It never really melted through it good enough, but you could hear it reacting. Salt makes its presence known. We are not supposed to be quiet in the world. The world is supposed to notice us and be changed by our presence. We are supposed to be the ones adding the flavor, creating the reactions. We are supposed to make a difference in the world around us. People should notice, not us, but they should notice the glory of God in us. Now, why would the salt have become tasteless? Why does he say, if it becomes tasteless, it can't be made salty again, so you just got to throw it out. It's useless. Because that's what happens when our obedience and our life is guided simply by trying to earn a good position with God and not by trying to make a difference for him in the world. We can go through this whole life and focus our entire obedience and relationship with God on ourselves. I'm going to do good. I'm going to do right. I'm going to keep the law. I'm going to keep the commandments. And that's all good. It's all worthwhile and it's important. But if you only live for yourself and not for the influence you can have on others, you're only getting half the picture. Jesus saved you because he loves you. And God allowed that sacrifice to take place because he wants a relationship with you. But he also needs you to make a difference in this world. Because he loves all of his creation. And he wants all of them to be brought home to him. And he needs us to go into this world and make a difference. Create a reaction. Add some flavor. And when we allow our obedience to be simply the, the actions of of following the, the customs of the law and not of being transformed in our heart, we lose our saltiness. He compares people to the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Boy, that's true. And if you ever have driven through very flat terrain uh, at night, you can, just, you, you can see the cities. You can't see them on the horizon, but you can see the glow uh, in the sky. Uh, 25 miles away, there might be a city there. Uh, but you can see the evidence of it. Because light is hard to hide. You know how hard it is to get something light tight? And keep light from coming into it? You know, I, I would love to have something like that. It would, it would be great for a good nap on a Sunday afternoon. But it's hard. Light, is, light penetrates things. It changes things. It reveals things. And we, as this light to the world, are revealing to those around us something has changed. Jesus has been here, and this world is not the same. Now, why, in the name of good sense, would you light something and then try to cover it? That's, that's what he says. You know, 
a shining city on a hill, it can't be hidden. You're going to see it. It's not down in the valley. Everybody around is going to know what's up there. And you don't light a lamp and then try to cover it. You put it in somewhere prominent so everybody can have light. So it illuminates the whole house. We are supposed to make a difference in what we reveal to the world around us. By how we live, they should see God more clearly. By how we live, they should know we're different. By how we live, they should see the glory of the Father and the Son. And that's how he concludes this section in verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now that sounds very simple, but when was the last time someone saw your good works and glorified anything besides you? And that's natural. That's natural. That when we do something that impresses someone, they're going to say, good job, good on you. You know, look at what you did. We're going to get noticed for the things we do in this life. There's recognition out there for for things that people accomplish. What Jesus is telling us is to live in such a way that when they see you, the only explanation possible is that there's some other force at work. I need people to see anything I do and say, I know Derek is not that impressive. All of you already know that. But I need need them to look at me and go, Derek is not that impressive. Something else is happening in his life. Something else is changing who he is it's shining brighter than he is really capable of because that's when they see god that's when they see the work of christ in my life and we are called to live in such a way that when people see us they even see beyond us to our god and to his son jesus who died for us i don't know how many of you watched the the documentary uh it was i wouldn't have seen it except that Everything was shut down for a few months here. So uh, that was kind of my, my favorite thing on a Sunday night was uh, ESPN had a 10-part documentary about Michael Jordan and the 1998 Bulls team, their final world championship. And I was really into this because as a kid that grew up in the 90s, I mean, Michael Jordan was it. Now, I, I'm a bit of a contrarian. I rooted for the Utah Jazz. But, but Michael Jordan was without a doubt the greatest basketball player that's ever lived. And I'll fight anyone that wants to debate me on that. He just was. And when you watch this documentary, it's so he is just another level above people in terms of competitiveness and drive and skill. But he had a life outside of basketball, after basketball. Yeah, he tried to play baseball for a little while. And really, he actually wasn't as bad as people said. He could have probably done okay with enough time. But... After his athletic career, and even currently, he is in front office management in the NBA. He was uh, uh, front office manager for the uh, uh, Washington Wizards, and he played a little bit for him. But he wasn't really good at being the director of baseball or of basketball operations for the Washington Wizards. And now he is a majority owner in the Charlotte Hornets. Um, but people, no one talks about Michael Jordan's skills in the front office. And if Michael Jordan were a coach, he probably wouldn't be a very good coach. Most of the best players don't make good coaches because they have an intuition and a talent and an ability that just, they can't understand that it doesn't come natural to other people. 
And skills on a basketball court don't translate into the front office all the time. And one of the things when observing Michael Jordan's post-playing career is his lack of success versus what he had on the court. And the main difference is that Michael Jordan is not doing what Michael Jordan does. Michael Jordan is a basketball player. And even at his age today, he could probably beat some current NBA players in a one-on-one game. He's just stubborn enough to do it. But in a front office, in a suit and tie, in an ownership suite, Michael Jordan is not Michael Jordan. He's taken away the part of him that made him who he was and that made him successful. And that happens all the time. It happens to us. When we abandon, walk away from, forget or ignore what God has called us to through Christ, we are not being who we were made to be. And our success is not based on how great we are naturally. Our success in this life is going to be based on how well we live up to what God has called us through, to through His Son. Be the best you can be. Be your best self. Be what God sees you as. He sees you through the eyes of his son. He sees you as children. And he's asking you to live accordingly. I think we should all strive to live to be examples of his glory and his love and his grace. And I love the Sermon on the Mount because it's Jesus telling us who he is, who his father is, and where our place is in the story. He is inviting us to step into the story. And you have a chance to step into that story with him today. If you need to be strengthened in your walk with him, if you need to uh, uh, get back on the right path with him, uh, if you're struggling in this life, we as a church family want to support you and pray for you, whether it's privately or publicly. Uh, we want to walk with you and walk with one another. If you need to become a Christian, if you're convicted in your heart, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He is the only way to be redeemed from the sins of this world, then there's an opportunity for you to become one with Christ and to enter into that covenant relationship with God. If you have a need this morning, in any way, let us know as we stand and while we sing together. Thank you for joining us for the Monroe Church of Christ podcast. We hope that you have found today's message to be uplifting, inspirational, and encouraging. Most of all, we hope that it helps you along your spiritual journey. If you have any questions or comments or would like to drop us a line, you can do so at MonroeWICOC at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you, and we look forward to you joining us next week.